and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Oren Kerr, Francis R. and John J. Duggan, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law, blogger on the Vol Conspiracy, and one of the foremost experts on the law of computer crime. And we will be discussing his article, Implementing Carpenter, which is part of his forthcoming book, The Digital Fourth Amendment. So welcome to the podcast, Oren. Glad to be here, Brian. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I really enjoyed reading your article um, and uh, learned a lot about Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, which is very much not not my area. And I was wondering if you could if you could start uh, this episode by explaining to listeners a little bit about what happened in Carpenter and why it was such a big change from previous previous Fourth Amendment doctrine. Sure. So the Fourth Amendment is the prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, basically limits police practices. And the Carpenter case held that the government needs a probable cause search warrant to collect historical cell site records. Those those are records that your cell phone company is uh, generating and keeping uh, as a business record uh, that basically gives a rough idea of where you're located. So Whenever your phone is on, you need to communicate with local cell towers for your communications to be delivered and received. And so your cell phone company is getting these records of basically of which cell towers, which cell sites your phone is connected to, to route the call. It may kind of say what neighborhood you're in, for example, or where, what neighborhood your phone is in. And those records can be really helpful for the government when they're trying to say that somebody was in a particular place at some past time. So in this case, in Carpenter, Carpenter was engaged in a string of robberies with some co-conspirators. And the government, in addition to having some uh, co-conspirators testify about what they did and what Carpenter did, uh, they were able to get these records that showed the location of Carpenter's phone, which uh, happened to match the places where these robberies occurred and happened to match the location where the other uh, defendants were. And so that basically was used as supplemental evidence to show that Carpenter was one of the people who robbed. It was actually a series of, of uh, cell phone stores, ironically. Uh, and, and the Supreme Court says that violates a reasonable expectation of privacy to collect those records. Uh, and this was a major shift in our understanding of the Fourth Amendment, because traditionally, Fourth Amendment law has said that business records, sort of third-party records, are belong to the business. So these would be sort of cell phone company records, and the cell phone providers have Fourth Amendment rights in those records, but not users, because that's information that you've revealed to a third party. You've, you've revealed your location to the company. It's company records about where you were uh, when they routed a call to you, and therefore that's the company's records would have been the traditional understanding. And, and Carpenter comes along and says, no, uh, these are the user's records. It violates a user's reasonable expectation of privacy for the uh, cell phone provider uh, to hand over these records, to be compelled to hand over these records uh, of where somebody was located, given how much information uh, cell phone record, location records can reveal about someone's location over time. Yeah, so maybe you could explain a little bit 
how this third party doctrine, the idea that information in the possession of someone other than the person asserting a Fourth Amendment right kind of fit into the logic of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in a broader sense prior to Carpenter? Because it seems like that might be helpful for people to understand how this is kind of changing the situation. Sure. So th this area really starts with undercover agents. When the government has an undercover and they send an undercover agent in to, say, buy some drugs or talk to somebody who's committing a crime, uh, back in the 50s, uh, defendants started saying, hey, wait a minute, when you sent that undercover agent into my house and I told them all about my crimes, that violated my Fourth Amendment rights. That's like breaking into my house. And in those cases, the Supreme Court said, well, no, you, you let that person in and you knowingly spoke to someone who it turns out was an undercover agent. That's your problem if it turns out that the person you were talking to is actually you know, a government spy and not the friend who you thought you were talking to. Choose your friends more wisely, basically, the Supreme Court said. And then the Supreme Court applied that same principle to business records when you're not talking about um, human undercover agents, but rather communication services that you're communicating with in the context, for example, of numbers dialed in a case called Smith versus Maryland. In that case, the Supreme Court said that when you dial the numbers, this is sort of old rotary telephones, to place a call, you're revealing what number you want to dial to the phone company because you need the phone company to enter in that number to connect you to the person you're trying to reach. And the Supreme Court said, well, if it was a person you were talking to, you know, you, back in the 40s, you want to call Pennsylvania 65000. So you, you talk to Thelma, the operator, and say, please connect me. And she could then remember what you'd said. And that, that wouldn't be your rights in that conversation, just like in the undercover case. That would be you know Thelma's stuff that she knows and she's allowed to reveal. And so the Supreme Court said no different just because the phone company has decided to automate and it's a device that's recording your number dialed instead of a person. So this idea was that when you knowingly reveal information to someone, you're giving that information to them. That's their information now. Kind of what you hear is yours. Uh, you know, if you're telling me something, you tell me you committed a crime. I now have that. That's my information now, not your information. And so the traditional third party doctrine is once you've knowingly revealed that information to somebody, you can't then control it. That's theirs to control, not yours. Yeah, well, you suggest in the paper that there's also a kind of very physical quality to the sort of previous conception of how the Fourth Amendment works. And it seems like in some respects what's happening in Carpenter going to this data rather than sort of like the thinginess of the information uh, seems like a change as well. Yeah, I think this is a big shift that Carpenter brings. And it's a shift that may not be fully realized by some because I think a lot of people really misunderstand this reasonable expectation of privacy test that you hear a lot about. So famously in 1967, the Supreme Court in Katz versus United States through a concurrence uh, by Justice Harlan says the Fourth Amendment is implicated when the government violates a reasonable expectation of privacy. And a lot of people think that's sort of this free-floating 1960s made-up test that's, you know, who knows what violates a reasonable expectation of privacy? Well, it's up to the justices, they tell us. And, and, and there's sort of an understanding that I think is wrong, that this was a free-floating test, and then Carpenter is just applying this free-floating test. And I think if you look at the cases, what the Katz test was really just doing was trying to say, okay, what is a Fourth Amendment-protected effect? What are the spaces? What are the things that the Fourth Amendment protects. And in the Katz case, the Supreme Court uh, ha happened to be a case involving a guy who was uh, uh, making a phone call from a public phone booth. 
the Supreme Court said, yeah, public phone booths are protected spaces. These are things that are protected because of the important role of the public telephone in American life, at least back in the 1960s. And throughout the, the period from 1960s to the present, the Supreme Court had always applied the reasonable expectation of privacy test with this very physicalist notion in mind. So you have Fourth Amendment rights in your home because it is your home. Sort of like mm-hmm. we draw that line, it's your home. You have Fourth Amendment rights in your car because it is your stuff, it's your car. Uh, you don't have Fourth Amendment rights out in the open, out in public, the court had said. You know, once you're out in the open, that's, that's you know, exposed to the public. You can't claim protection in that. So until Carpenter... There was a very much, uh, the cases suggested a very clear rooting of the Fourth Amendment in places and things, I think matching the text of the Fourth Amendment, the, the textual protection, which is about, you know, uh, uh, houses, persons, papers, and effects. And then Carpenter comes along and starts saying, well, we need to do more than that. You know, we need to have the Fourth Amendment protect not just places, not just things, but we need to protect uh uh, information kind of wherever it's stored. So what's interesting about the court's approach and what's new is the court's basically saying, this stuff is so private. Your records of where you are is so private that we're going to say it's protected regardless of who has it and, and, and where it's stored. So we don't care that it happens to be a, a, a business record. This is your private stuff. And so we're going to regulate the transmission of that information from the provider to the government. And that's a that's a really new idea of protecting information in the abstract and not the places and things from which the information is taken. Yeah. Well, and it also, I mean, it seems like talking about the location of digital information and kind of data stored in an intangible format like that is at least more complicated than thinking about the location of data stored in a tangible format. I think that's right. And, and I think the court was concerned that this location-focused approach to the Fourth Amendment didn't protect enough in a world of the internet where information can be anywhere and, and can be held by anyone. And, and I think, you know, if you think back to the physical uh, understanding of, of, of the world, sort of, you know, pre-digital facts, you kept your private stuff in your home and you could bring your private stuff out into public, but if you really were worried about other people seeing it, you just keep it in your home or in your trunk of your car or whatever your protected spaces are. And in the digital world, well, wait a minute, where is your protected space? It's really records being held by these third-party providers, whether it's, you know, Gmail or, or uh, uh, Amazon or whoever is protecting your records. And if you just have this notion of protected spaces, you can do virtual spaces, uh, like your email is, is uh, pretty clearly protected, the contents. But even the records now in a world where there's uh, these service providers are routing everything, well, then suddenly all this private stuff is available to third parties. And I think the court was basically saying, we need to rein in the Fourth Amendment. We need to, we need to rein in government power to protect the traditional role of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and this is a process I've called equilibrium adjustment, basically saying the technology has changed. We need to change the rule to preserve the function of the Fourth Amendment. And I think that's what they were doing in Carpenter. Yeah, I mean, you use an analogy or you use an example in the paper that I thought was really compelling, which was, you know, growing up in the era of typewriters and letters and file cabinets and so on, you know, you might carry a single letter or something around with you or a single document. But like, 
I thought about it for a minute. It's like my cell phone in my pocket, like literally every piece of information I've generated in like the last 10 years is like right there in my pocket around with me all the time. True. And, and physical devices are actually a little bit different because once it's on your phone, we can say, well, that's in your pocket. And the rules of the Fourth Amendment traditionally are, you know, if it's in your pocket, it's protected. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, so w- what was different with Carpenter is this is these are records that are being held by a business. You probably you, you don't know what records the business has. You can't access those records. Uh, you don't know if they were created. You don't know if they have been deleted. You can't control them. And yet it's basically your stuff is what is what the Supreme Court is saying in Carpenter. Uh, and that's a really new idea. Yeah. So you, you suggest in in the article that the facts of Carpenter as described by the court are maybe like a little stylized, like not exactly what was happening in the real world, but rather the kind of the Supreme Court's re- reconstruction of it. Um, in what way is that the case? And do you think it affects meaningfully sort of how we should think about the court's decision or sort of how it's going to be implemented in the future? So the, the court presented these historical cell site records like Big Brother, uh, you know, absolute surveillance, total surveillance, like having a GPS device uh, strapped to your ankle at all times. You know, they, they really had a sense that this was just total, absolute, precise surveillance um, uh, at, at all times. Uh, certainly a scary prospect, if, if true. I, I think the reality of the technology is that it's not nearly that precise. The, the, records in the, or the, the record in the case, that is the testimony of trial, was that the cell site historical records are within um, a half a mile to two miles in distance. So basically, the location would be of the cell site, not the phone. It would be what business site was used to route the communication and that typically would be within like a mile or two of where the phone was. And so that's basically revealing maybe what neighborhood you're in or what town you're in, or you're, at least your phone is in, not, you know, what room you're in or whether you, you walk 10 feet in one direction and then turned around and walked 20 feet back. But the Supreme Court, I think, had a problem in Carpenter, which is that they don't know what the direction of the technology is. And there was you know, some considerable concern that cell site records would become more invasive over time. And so that creates a problem. What do you do? Do you say, okay, well, right now, cell site records are not that invasive, so or not that precise, therefore, we won't regulate it. And then like 10 years later, you have a new decision that says, okay, we've changed our mind, the technology has changed enough. And what happens if it's different companies, they have different practices, maybe they keep these records, maybe they don't, maybe they keep precise records, maybe they try to make them less precise by deleting some of the records. It's really hard. You can't sort of essentialize the technology in a way that you want to to develop a Fourth Amendment rule. What we like to do in Fourth Amendment law is say, you know, here's the it's a a home search. Homes are very private. And we kind of essentialize the notion of a home in order to have a rule just for homes. And when you have a technology that is changing and that uh, the, the nature of the technology depends on the service provider, and that depends on the private company that the Supreme Court can't control. You run into a problem of how do you describe what this technology is? And the Supreme Court basically gave the most severe version of the technology that they could kind of imagine and said, that's the nature of this technology. And then they were not all that interested in the actual record in this case and 
and how like oh yeah it turned out the records here didn't reveal that much um they just kind of put that oh. aside we're not going to worry about that. Yeah. Um, so you argue in the paper that there remains a considerable amount of uncertainty about sort of what Carpenter means in practice for applying this rule going forward to other forms of uh, other forms of information or other categories of information, other categories of of metadata. Can you explain why you see there being that kind of uncertainty and maybe talk a little bit about some of the ways of potentially implementing it that you've identified in the paper? Sure. So uh, to say there's uncertainty is is a, a fantastic Fourth Amendment understatement. Uh, there's extraordinary uncertainty. Nobody has any idea what to do with this case now. And the reason is that the traditional Fourth Amendment approach was to say the contents of communications are protected. They're your stuff. Your email is protected. Non-content metadata, information about the delivery of communications is not protected. And so you had statutes that regulated non-content, and then the Fourth Amendment and statutes regulated content. And we have hundreds of different kinds of metadata, and we now have to figure out, okay, are those... What what what, happened, what do we do with those? So what non-content metadata is protected by the Fourth Amendment and what isn't? And that's critical because the statutes typically say that less privacy protection than the Fourth Amendment ordinarily provides is, uh, uh, is, is applied to those records. So just thinking of a typical uh, criminal investigation these days, the government might want to get you know records from an email account of you know when somebody logged in or when an email was sent or uh, basic subscriber information about who registered that account. Uh, the government gets these records all the time. Well, what are the rules now that apply to collecting those records? Like, who knows? This is a huge uncertainty. Hmm. Maybe it's not protected. Maybe it is protected. And so, the the challenge I took on in these two chapters of of the book project. Is, is trying to understand what Carpenter is and what it means, and then really trying to reduce that to some sort of doctrinal test or framework that, that lower courts can use to say, okay, we've got to somehow draw lines here to distinguish among things which in the past were all thought to be the same. We're not going to say they're all the same. We're going to say they're different in some critical constitutional way. And so I, I try to lay out different ways in which uh, uh, sort of a test for how to say whether the Fourth Amendment protects a particular kind of non-content record uh, and when it doesn't. Yeah, so you suggest there's kind of like three, or you kind of talk about three different ways of potentially um, conceptualizing the application of Carpenter, some of which I got the impression were sort of things that were being advanced by other people, whereas uh, one that you refer to it as the the source rule sort of being something that is a, a different sort of approach that you've suggested and maybe some other people have suggested something similar as well. I was wondering if you could kind of lay out for listeners sort of what you think the kind of possible approaches are and why you think some of the alternatives that people have proposed might not be uh, as workable as what you've suggested. Sure. So there are two difficult kinds of challenges you need to answer in order to implement Carpenter to sort of reduce it to rules. The first is to describe the kinds of records that should be subject to Carpenter treatment. That is, um, what are the kinds of records that 
they're the collection of which can be a search like are the ones like the ones in Carpenter themselves, the, the cell site records. And so I, I go through Carpenter and relying on this broader uh, uh, understanding of equilibrium adjustment. I say there are three criteria that need to be satisfied for a particular kind of record to be one that can trigger Carpenter. And so these are pretty complicated tests, but this really sort of language taken from the Carpenter opinion. So it needs to be records that are uh, made possible by surveillance methods of the digital age. It has to be sort of a new kind of digital record. Uh, the record creation can't be the product of a user's meaningful voluntary choice. It has to be kind of you, a kind of record that is generated whenever you use a standard internet service that we all use. That obviously is a huge judgment call, but very much both based in Carpenter and in this broader uh, theory, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, and then third, uh, you need to have records that reveal an intimate portrait of a person's life, sort of really personal details that can be revealed by that category of record. Now, once you've identified here are the kinds of records which uh, uh, can trigger Carpenter, you then need to figure out whether a particular acquisition of those kinds of records triggers Carpenter. Uh, and I think there are sort of three different ways you might want to measure that. And so this is this is the second chapter of the of the uh, paper that I that I filed, which is on sort of okay, how do you know when a Carpenter source record is going to trigger the Fourth Amendment? And and I think there's there are three different approaches. One is what I call the subjective approach, which is whenever the government obtains records that in fact reveal these personal details about somebody, that's when a search occurs. So you could say, for example, um, collecting uh, some historical cell site records is not a search, but the moment the government obtains a record that reveals something private about somebody, oh, you know, you look at you're the you're the investigator and you say, oh my gosh, I've just realized that this guy is attending this quirky church or this guy, I've just realized he's he's having an affair uh, with so and so, and I know this from the record. That the subjective approach would be to look at that moment. Um, the mosaic theory, which is something that was suggested in in some earlier cases and some lower courts have have uh, some have suggested is the right way, some have suggested is not, uh, would be to say you kind of look in the aggregate. You say sort of in general, this is how many records would need to be collected in order to present this intimate portrait of a person's life. So that would be kind of a distinction between short-term and long-term surveillance. Maybe you let the government get a day's historical cell site records without a search, but once the government collects a week of records, that becomes a search. So that's that's the mosaic idea. Uh -huh. The thinking being that a search occurs when a mosaic of a person's life is created and the whole picture of records in the aggregate suddenly reveals this information. And you try to guess when that line will be ahead of time and say, you can't go there. That's when a search occurs. Uh, and then the third approach is what I call the source rule. And that is that any record which in any way is affected by any of the um, Carpenter protected category of records has to be a search. That's kind of the over-inclusive rule that kind of says, if you ever dip into that well of Carpenter protected records, that should be a search. And so what I do in the, in the second part of this paper that I've, that I've posted on SSRN is, is run through the three different approaches. And I basically argue the only possible way of implementing Carpenter to come up with any kind of rule that makes any sense and anyone could apply is this source rule, this over-inclusive approach that says, you know, as soon as you dip into any amount, any any quantity of these records, it, it's all treated as, as a search. Uh, and that, I think that's really the only way forward. So 
So maybe you could just spend a minute sort of explaining what you think the deficiencies of the sort of subjective and mosaic approaches are and and why you think the uh, the source rule is more workable, even though, you know, it may be more inclusive or even over over inclusive. And I, and I got to say, you know, re- reading the paper, it, it struck me that the source rule did have an interesting characteristic of reminding me much more of traditional Fourth Amendment jurisprudence than the other two approaches did. Yeah, uh, I think you're right that the source rule is it's more traditional. It's like breaking into the private space, treating all the records as akin to in the private space. So in, in that sense, it is pretty similar. But the, the challenge with the subjective approach and the mosaic theory is that you're trying to estimate when something is a privacy violation. And when something is a privacy violation is incredibly contextual. And it's really hard to base some sort of a rule on what the government can do and when a person has a remedy against that government on an incredibly contextual question. And, and, and so I think the easiest way of seeing this is through the source, is through the subjective approach, this idea that the moment the government learns this record where they see something, they realize, aha, this person is engaged in you know, intimate conduct X, then a search occurs, is that whether information is revealing or not revealing generally depends on what else you know or what else you think is the case. So you know, whether a, protect, a particular record is revealing, you can never really answer in the abstract. You know, this phone was located in this town. Well, that could be completely useless information. But once you find out, oh, wait, this phone was used by this particular person. Okay, well, then you're getting closer. Then you, you're able to say, this person was in this town. And then you find out, well, there's only one reason to be in this town. The only reason to be in this town is there was a particular festival held by people of a quirky religion. And then you go, aha, I wonder if that person was in that town because they're part of that religion. And you're sort of drawing conclusions based on possible facts. And you're sort of thinking, I wonder if this is the case based on what you know. And each individual piece of information is just a small picture of that judgment call you're making. So if you're trying to apply uh, 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 what I call the subjective approach and you're looking for that moment, you have this incredibly difficult task of identifying at what moment did the government learn to some constitutional degree of certainty some fact that is actually based on all sorts of other information that they may know or not know. And they may, the next hour, learn another fact, which suggests that that fact is no longer true. And did the search stop at that moment? Sort of trying to track that mm. that um, moment when a privacy violation occurred because of an information transfer is just impossible to do in a way that gives the police rules that they need to follow. So a lot of this is motivated by an understanding that yeah, Fourth Amendment rules need to be clear because you need to tell the police what they can and can't do. Uh, and people need remedies when the police break the rules and the remedies really rely on clarity without a clear violation usually there there isn't much in the way of a constitutional remedy so you need to tell the police what they can do and they can do that if the rule is like don't get any cell site records they can't do it if it's like don't get cell site records at least in a way that might reveal something that's kind of embarrassing about a person in context based on what else you know because that leads you to this mm-hmm. impossible sort of 
reassembling of an investigation to try to figure out a moment when someone knew something and it's just not a rule that can be administered. Yes, I don't, I don't know if I'm like if I'm entirely conceptualizing this correctly, but it almost seemed to me like in practice the subjective approach would be to say it's a search whenever the government finds out anything interesting. Well, when the government finds out something that is part of this intimate portrait of the person's life, and 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 where this is a plausible theory, I mean, I I, I should say all three of these approaches are are plausible based on the Carpenter opinion. Carpenter is based on this idea that technology has shifted and has given the government ways of finding out really private facts about people. Uh, and so the, the, the Supreme Court and Carpenter is saying, wow, you know, if you can get somebody's historical cell site records, you know where they're going, you know who they are, you know who their friends are, you know where they went, you know what they did. You can assemble this incredibly intimate portrait of a person's life based on having those records. And so it's totally plausible to say, well, the moment when the government actually gets those records and learns that sort of wow thing, um, that's when a search occurs. And, and so it's not necessarily just an interesting fact. It's, it's one of these things that reveals, you know, an intimate portrait of a person's life, the privacies of life. And the court clearly in Carpenter is concerned with learning somebody's religion, learning somebody's sexual preferences, learning um, it, it, illnesses they may have, sort of things that are outside of a legitimate government interest that the government may nonetheless learn by collecting these records. So it's plausible to try to look for that moment. But I think if you try it, it's just it's not a rule you can apply uh, in any way that tells the police what mm -hmm. they can and can't do. Right. So it seems like your suggested alternative is just to say we're going to we're going to identify categories of information where it's just per se a search for the government to get that information rather than this kind of more um, – context specific sort of approach is is there any sort of consensus about what categories of data or information or documents would would qualify um, under that kind of approach and sort of what do you think the court should look to so it's it's too early to tell if there's a consensus because the carpenter opinion just came out in June and we're all just trying to figure out what the case means now um, but the, the categories that I think should be protected are um, metadata about uh, 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 written communication. So basically text messages, emails, messages, messaging software, and who you messaged and uh, when you messaged them. Uh, that metadata, transactional information about who you messaged should be protected and what websites you visit. Uh, sort of watching somebody's web surfing and seeing what websites they visited. I think that should get carpenter treatment. And those are these new kinds of records that reveal an intimate portrait of a person's life and that are just such a fundamental part of this new digital world. And, and that anytime the government gets any of those records, that should be a search. And what's tricky is that you then have to say, well, what are the pre-existing records? And so I, I go through the paper why I think, um, for example, numbers dialed, phone numbers dialed um, should still not be treated as a search and that phone calls, sort of voice communications are different from written communications, cl clearly a tricky line. But what's hard about Carpenter is it says some things are old, some things are new, and we need to draw those lines. So in the paper, I really take on, I'm like, all right, you know, all right, justices, you said we need to draw these lines. Let's try to do it. And it, it gets really hard. But I think that's the task that the Supreme Court is, first of all, requiring us to, to undergo and requiring us to take. 
and also that is consistent with this broader theory of technological change and how the Fourth Amendment responds to it, this equilibrium adjustment idea that you try to restore the prior function of the Fourth Amendment across technological change. And that means when there is are these new powers that the government has, you might change the rule to try to subject that new government power to constitutional oversight. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got to say, I, I mean, I, I really did find your kind of proposed source rule the most sort of uh, compelling way of operationalizing what it seems like the court is tr- was trying to do in Carpenter. But I also felt a certain amount of ambivalence uh, about Carpenter itself. And I, I'm wondering, was I reading that into the paper or, you know, what do you think of the Carpenter decision as a whole? I think it was wrongly decided. <laughs> so I'll be I'll be upfront about that. I, <laughs> okay, I wrote so this brief uh, saying that the court should come out the other way, uh, and and critically though because of the facts of historical cell site records. So my approach was to say, listen, these records are not nearly as invasive as the as Carpenter presents them as, and therefore you don't need to go into this you know equilibrium adjustment uh, routine and come up with all new principles and 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 require this very difficult line drawing exercise because these records just don't justify it. They're not that invasive. The court decided instead to treat the facts as if they were very invasive based on, I think, this understanding of that's the direction that we're going in. Uh, And so the court jumped ahead, treated the technology that way, and then said, okay, you know, I think having treated it that way, here's the equilibrium adjustment we need to conduct. So I end up in this sort of odd situation of thinking, it it was wrongly decided on the facts, but the inspiration behind it is right if you assume the right facts. And there are other internet problems like web surfing and messaging metadata that do raise those same concerns. And so that's where this opinion should go, even though based on the technology and the actual record in the Carpenter case, I don't think the court was was correct. Okay, cool. Well, Oren, it's been it's been great talking to you. I was wondering if in closing you could leave listeners with any kind of predictions or prognostications about what you think is likely to happen next in this important area. So uh, I should say these two chapters that I posted on SSRN are part of a forthcoming book project, The Digital Fourth Amendment. And the, the book is about this broader transformation of Fourth Amendment law much like the Supreme Court created kind of a specific set of Fourth Amendment rules for cars, uh, it's in the process of creating a, a separate field of Fourth Amendment law for computers. And the way I think of it is that uh, the computer will be to the 21st century First Amendment, Fourth Amendment what the car was to the 20th century Fourth Amendment. And we'll have mm-hmm. all of these computer-specific rules that deal with the new dynamics of the digital age and we've seen really two cases so far. We saw Riley versus California in 2014, saying that a warrant is needed to search a cell phone incident to arrest. And then we have Carpenter in 2018, saying that a, a warrant is needed to collect historical cell site records. I think these are the first two of what's going to be a very large body of law, creating Fourth Amendment specific rules for computers that the justices are going to be working out over the next 10 or 20 years. So I I really think the story of the Fourth Amendment for our generation for the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, is going to be working through what this new Fourth Amendment looks like. And of course, I hope to lay out some helpful ways of doing that in my forthcoming book, shall I ever actually get to the point where I finished it. Well, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Warren.
Thanks for having me, Brian. This is the backdrop to a strip joint, where burlesque rides roughshod over the bodies of its dancers and fringe people mingle with its customers in the clapping, clamoring mist of smoke and whiskey fumes. It's today's story of survival. It's today's story of sex and violence. Killing of a Chinese Bookie, starring Ben Gazzara, produced by Al Rubin, written and directed by John Cassavetes. <laughs>